And welcome back to another episode of Take This Job and Love It. This is a podcast from Yale's Office of Career Strategy aimed at helping you through the various aspects of finding a job and building a career that you love. My name is Claire Zala, and I'm a junior in Yale College. I work with the Common Good and Creative Career team to support Yale students interested in pursuing careers that make a difference and encourage creativity. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Christopher Mellon. Chris was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence from November 1999 to January 2002. He has spent nearly 20 years in the U.S. intelligence community and has taught as an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Today, Chris is the Chairman of the Advisory Board at Two Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences and is a member of the cast on the History Channel series, Unidentified, Inside America's UFO Investigation, where he hopes to help identify the source of the mysterious craft the U.S. Navy acknowledges are continuing to violate U.S. airspace. So, Chris, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm really excited about this. Oh, delighted to be here. Thank you. Awesome. So, Chris, intelligence is, like, for very good reason, a pretty opaque career field. How did you get your foot in the door and get your first job? Yeah, thanks for asking, Claire, because I think that is really the trick. That's the hard part, is getting your foot in the door. And Yale students with the uh, the talent and the uh, energy that they they bring to virtually any endeavor are uh, in all probability going to thrive uh, once they do get their foot in the door uh, in that environment and, and many others besides. So that's a great place to focus. In my case, um, after graduating from Yale, I interviewed with some international banks and uh, was not really uh, satisfied that that was going to, to be as fulfilling as uh, working for the government uh, in my particular case. So I thought, how could I get a job inside the intelligence community? And how could I arrive at a position where I had a very uh, broad and deep insights into what is really going on behind the scenes in the US government and around the world? And my conclusion after doing some research was that the Senate Intelligence Committee would be a fantastic place to work because it's not only CIA, but in fact, all the agencies of the intelligence community, uh, DIA, uh, NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office, which builds our space satellites, our intelligence satellites, uh, National Security Agency, which does uh, cryptography to protect our communications, as well as uh, code breaking and uh, signals intercept of adversary communications. Um, the National Geospatial Agency, which renders uh, uh, data from satellites into uh, maps and, and other products for, for policymakers and warfighters and so on. So uh, I looked at the, the members of the committee. There's one in the House and one in the Senate. Uh, identified a few members that uh, were simpatico politically. And then uh, I think this was the key. Um, I contacted their chief of staff, uh, praised the member uh, involved described my uh, affinity for them in their office and said, uh, hey, I'm willing to, to work for nothing. Uh, I have no expectations. Uh, there's no attitude here. I'll do the lowliest jobs. I'll wash windows, whatever you want. Uh, I'd just like to be part of the team. And that's hard to say no to, uh, to somebody who's willing to, to come in with that, uh, with that approach. So after interviewing me, they gave me a chance. Uh, within, uh, I would say, two months, I was on the payroll uh, as 
very low-level position as a legislative correspondent. A couple of months after that, I was promoted to a legislative assistant, and I began to get involved in substantive policy issues, very substantive policy issues, staffing the senator at the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, which at that time was doing legislation to actually overhaul the uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the entire organization of the department. And it was very dry, uh, a very dry issue, very dry material, not of interest to the general public. Um, and so nobody really wanted to do that assignment on the staff, and I was happy to do it. And it was an amazing experience. And uh, uh, if it were appropriate, we could talk more about it. I won't go too far down, uh, digress too far down that, uh, that particular avenue. But it has saved lives and dramatically improved the, the military performance of the United States in conflict. So if you uh, can identify clearly your, your objective, and again, coming back to your, your key question, how do you get started? Um, I think if you approach people with enthusiasm and, um, uh, uh, you know, a lack of attitude, a willingness to, um, to, to do whatever is, is required, whatever the team needs, there's a good chance they'll, they'll take you on those terms and give you a, let you get started. If you've got the resources to, not everybody can necessarily afford that strategy, but if you're able to do that for at least, uh, you know, perhaps uh, some weeks or months, there's a very good chance they'll, you'll quickly uh, show value and it'll turn into a longer term proposition and then you're off to the races. So it really seems like just having that faith and, and that commitment to what you want really paid off. I mean, you went from not even being on the payroll to being the third highest intelligence position at the Pentagon. Right. And, and I've seen secretaries become staff directors on Capitol Hill. It's a, it's a true meritocracy. Um, and it's interesting because Congress does not apply to itself the rules that, that it mandates for uh, the private sector and for the rest of the government. So they don't have to, um, if you're a civil servant, say, and you work at the CIA, you have to follow the uh, career path, sort of, a, you know, you're a GS-14, step three or whatever, and after so many years in grade, you're eligible to advance to the next, you know, incrementally to the next level. At Capitol, at Capitol Hill, you can go from being uh, somebody who just answers letters or is, you know, uh, uh, sweeping the hallway to uh, dealing directly with senior policymakers at, at the whim of, of a senator or a congressman. So it's a very, it's a good, it can be a great place to start. You get a panoramic view of government. You quickly find yourself rubbing elbows with people that a career civil servant will probably never encounter in their entire lives. Um, I can remember after only having been there a few months, riding over to the Capitol uh, with the senator, sitting by his side, rubbing elbows with Senator Glenn, the astronaut, and others, going over to the floor for a vote. It's a heady experience, um, almost a little mind-boggling. Uh, in one case, as I started working on this legislation and investigating, I spent a lot of time doing research on my own, and I uh, concluded that we had a, a problem dealing with unconventional conflicts, aside from our ability to deal with strategic nuclear warfare and conventional warfare. 
And I consulted with a lot of guys at the Pentagon who were in special operations forces, uh, proposed legislation to the senator as this young guy in his 20s. He signed off on it. Um, I got the Senate Legislative Council to draft a bill. And within two years of being on Capitol Hill, um, this legislation, after a lot of hard work and hearings, was enacted by Congress and established the U.S. Special Operations Command. And so I was having this, um, you know, I was kind of uh, mind-boggling almost experience of being able to affect national policy um, at that level. And the uh, the government was staunchly opposed. The Reagan administration threatened to veto the bill. And even though it made eminent good sense, and now everybody uh, throughout the military and the Defense Department um, thinks that the Special Operations Command is terrific, and it was a great thing that we did. Um, and yet at the time, uh, there was tremendous opposition from all the entrenched bureaucratic uh, interests. So it really is possible to to go far and fast um, in that particular environment, and it can also translate, as you referenced my becoming uh, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, that happened because the senator I worked for was asked by President Clinton to serve as Secretary of Defense. And so when he was nominated, he asked me to, to uh, if I wanted to join him in the Defense Department, which, of course, I did, and uh, worked on his transition team. But uh, you can move into the executive branch from Capitol Hill and enter potentially at a much higher level than you would if you had started in the executive branch and we're trying to work your way up through the civil service system. So that's another advantage. Even if your longer term objective say is to work for CIA or DIA or state department or something else, um, you can have a, a, a very good opportunity to move in at a, at a high level from Capitol Hill, uh, potentially as a political appointee say, to a, a very demanding, uh, higher-level job with more responsibility. Uh, the the downside, of course, of, of being a political appointee or working on the Hill is job security. Um, you, you don't have you don't have the job security that civil servants have, so that's the the big trade-off from a career standpoint. I see, and you know, jumping off of that, could you would you be willing to talk a little bit more about what the position of um, United States Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence is? Sure. So <clears throat> the Secretary of Defense has a uh, span of control that is is uh, almost inherently impossible and unmanageable. He's responsible for approximately 40 different agencies, including the Department of Defense, the largest uh, organization in the federal government that has uh, two million, roughly 2 million employees. So he has a large staff to help him manage uh, all of this, and uh, it's the Office of the Secretary of Defense, which has about 2,000 employees. Uh, that probably ought to be whittled down, but that's another discussion. So I was a member of, of his staff of the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, my, my role, of course, the Secretary has to delegate you know, 99.99% of, of what needs to be done within the department. And even at that, he's, he's overwhelmed with all of the things that uh, 
that he has to sign off on and, and, and do and be responsible for. But um, some of the things that I did uh, included reviewing sensitive intelligence activities on behalf of the secretary to make sure they passed a, uh, a political test. Um, some of the activities that are um, proposed bear potential diplomatic risk if they come to light. Um, the secretary needs somebody who understands his point of view um, to, to review these kinds of sensitive activities on his behalf because he doesn't have the, the time, obviously. Um, so there were a range of activities like that. Um, more of my time was spent reviewing budget and policy issues writ large, uh, coordinating with the, uh, the CIA. Uh, it was one of my functions, uh, attending regular meetings at agency headquarters to represent the Defense Department perspective um, and, uh, on, on various uh, interagency issues. Uh, the Secretary's staff has been reorganized. There's now an Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, and they have a broad portfolio that, that includes uh, management. Most of the intelligence community is in the Defense Department, and even though it's uh, it's kind of a matrix organization. So the director of national intelligence uh, has responsibility and authority jointly with the secretary of defense. So the national security agency, for example, which is bigger than CIA, is uh, a defense department organization. It usually has a flag rank officer uh, leading it. Uh, many of its personnel are military personnel. And uh, people don't generally understand that CIA is uh, – a fairly small part of the overall intelligence community and is the only component that's outside the Department of Defense. So there's a tremendous amount of oversight uh, and a tremendous number of issues that bubble up uh, on the Defense Department side that the Secretary needs to be apprised of and his interests and equities and perspectives need to be represented on budget and policy and so forth. I don't know. That's if that helps. No, um, that that really does. Um, and it makes me want to ask, you know, working in national security and working in defense seems like it would be a very high pressure job at times, especially because you were serving during the 9-11 attacks in 2001. Um, what would you say is the biggest reward and, and certainly the biggest challenge of this role? Yeah. So, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of uh, uh, challenge and frustration dealing with, quote, the bureaucracy end quote. Um, these days, now there's all this discussion, this nonsense about the deep state and all that sort of thing. Um, there is no cabal or conspiracy among civil servants, but there is always resistance to change. And uh, that that occurs regardless of the political orientation of the, the president, the commander in chief. Uh, it may be greater in some instances than others, but you're, you're trying to lead change uh, in an organization, in a government that uh, where most of the people are essentially have tenure and can't be fired. And so one of the big challenges is, is motivating people and getting them aligned when there's so many different agendas and so many different priorities and, and such an overwhelming workload. Uh, so that's, that's one of the, uh, of the biggest challenges. Um, and just 
your best days are when you, those days when you get something done, like the establishment of the Special Operations Command, that, I mean, that's why you join government, right? You want to make a contribution to the greater good. You want to help solve problems for the country. And when you have one of those days, it's immensely gratifying. But but those days are, are more the exception than the rule. Um, a lot of your time is spent just uh, pushing paper and signing off on things, um, dealing with uh, various bureaucratic requirements that, that are time-consuming and not very productive, being able to stuff away and uh, get your staff and your colleagues uh, aligned and focused on important issues and being able to overcome the inevitable resistance to change. Uh, anything meaningful is going to arouse opposition. And unfortunately, you have one person in the department who can say yes, that's the secretary, do it. And you have, it seems like a virtually infinite number of people that can say no and block something from happening. So any initiative that you take is going to require coordination with maybe 17 or more different offices and individuals from the general counsel to, you know, it goes on and on and on. In my case, the uh, director of central intelligence and the director of national intelligence and his staff and maybe the services and the joint chiefs and on and on and on. And virtually any one of these uh, agents of the process can, can bring things to the screeching halt or say no or raise objections. Uh, or simply not understand what you're trying to do. So uh, hurting the cats, as they say, is uh, you know, it can be very difficult and exasperating. And uh, uh, I think that's probably the the greatest frustration and difficulty with the job. When you when you are able to succeed at the end of the day and, and get big things done, policy making, I I would. I would say this is this is important. People don't understand this. The easy thing is technology. The easy thing is you know is as incredibly uh, sort of mind-boggling as it is say to build something like the Hubble Space Telescope with all of its capabilities. Those are largely issues of just allocating enough resources, and then you can get it done. Uh, but actually changing policy on things like how we handle classified information. Um, getting a getting agreement among the bureaucracy and all the different organizations that have a, a hand in that um, and and dealing with Congress something like that it doesn't require any money at all but it's much it's ten times as hard as say trying to build a satellite with a hyperspectral imagery capability uh, policy making is really really hard making making changes. And one of the challenges is that the Defense Department, the nation, needs to adjust and adapt to a changing world, just like any species in the wild does if it's going to survive. And one of my greatest fears and concerns right now is that we as a nation, uh, because of what's happening in the legislative branch um, and what's happening in, in, in the executive branch as well, in fact, all three branches of government, that there's a... There's a, there's a, there's a a dis systematic dysfunctional dysfunction that's that's arising things that the founding fathers could not have envisioned and we're losing our ability to 
quickly and, and rapidly adapt to changing circumstances in the world around us. You know, this seems like a really good point to transition to the work that you've been doing where you have been trying to affect this kind of change and transition. Um, so right now you're with the History Channel and you wrote an article um, discussing the threat that UFOs pose to national security, um, which I found very interesting. And so I'm wondering, was researching UFOs a, nat a natural transition from working in intelligence? And what has that been like? Right. So <laughs> this is, this is uh, obviously seems like a like a strange thing, but but it's really uh, it's a good example of much of what I've been talking about, and and this is outrageous, just outrageous, and yet it's absolutely true, and uh, and and not a singular uh, example by any means. But there, in the last two years, I became about 2016. I became aware that Navy pilots on squadrons in the East Coast were routinely encountering these vehicles in restricted military airspace that they could not identify. And they were seeing them visually, they were acquiring them as they, they had just upgraded these, uh, these F-18s to a, a new and very much more powerful and capable radar system. And as soon as they did, they began to detect uh, these objects and these things were maneuvering sometimes at supersonic speeds uh, they had no transponders um, they had no exhaust they had no wings there was no evident means of lift or propulsion and uh, nobody was doing anything about it and the Navy um, was not reporting this the intelligence community was not sending any reports up the chain of command about this or doing anything to support these guys. In one case, there was a near mid-air collision that uh, would have pro proven fatal to, uh, to two aviators had it occurred and they filed a flight safety report and still nothing was being done. And so where are these things coming from? Uh, what, what is the agenda of whoever it is who's, who's controlling them? And uh, So is the implication that it's another uh, nation state or that this is uh, like extraterrestrial? Well, this is the thing we don't know and we just don't know. And yet the, the, the possibility that they could be extraterrestrial seemed to paralyze everybody. And nobody wanted to touch the issue because of the uh, stigma that surrounds that. And so nobody was responding to help these guys or to back them up. And they're concerned from the standpoint of potential mid-air collisions, it's sort of a very tactical concern, but they're also concerned strategically that a potential adversary has had a breakthrough in aerospace engineering. They're concerned that it's a threat to carrier battle groups. These things were uh, seemingly following them on deployment across the Atlantic to the Middle East. And they were encountering them also on deployment overseas in the Middle East. And uh, the system was not responding in any way, um, which is arguably illegal. Um, there is uh, legislation, um, I think it's Section 503C of the National Security Act of 1947 is amended which requires the um, Secretary of Defense and other senior officials to report 
uh, significant intelligence activities and failures. And the, in my view at least, the inability to identify aircraft that are violating U.S. airspace and restricted military airspace on a recurring basis over a period of months and years is an intelligence failure, a major intelligence failure. And yet Congress was not being informed. Nobody was being informed. So uh, this was, uh, to me, upsetting, outrageous, unacceptable. Um, I began to work with uh, an individual in the Pentagon who's now a colleague of mine on the History Channel show, Lou Elizondo. Um, there were a couple of young guys that I had mentored a little bit who at this point in time, had, had I had mentioned them years ago, um, they had become uh, one of them the White House liaison to the Secretary of Defense and the other was an assistant to the Secretary of Defense. So I got these folks together, arranged for Lou to brief them, tried to get it to the Secretary of Defense himself. Um, we were unable to get past the, uh, the Praetorian Guard that surrounds the Secretary and get a briefing on his agenda. And it was at that point Lou finally resigned. Um, but the, even after that, even after the videos were released, um, to the New York Times, which which I was uh, the person who did that. Um, actually, that'll become be coming out in the documentary this summer. More information about that. But even after the Navy publicly admitted and acknowledged that these incidents are 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 genuine and that we that these vehicles are truly unidentified and we don't know uh, where they're from. Um, and we don't understand their means of repulsion. The Navy has publicly acknowledged that these are truly unidentified aerial phenomenon, aerial vehicles. Uh, and still, the Department is, is not, uh, the Air Force is not cooperating with the Navy. They don't want to investigate. Um, Congress is, is doing nothing. Um, there's still lethargy and inertia. Um, and virtually nothing is happening to this day, even notwithstanding those public admissions, to try to get to the bottom of it. So it is a pretty frustrating mystery as of right now, it seems. Um, Chris, it we seems are... Unacceptable. It seems unacceptable to me. I mean, the average person assumes that if there are enemy, potential enemy aircraft overflying the United States, Russian, Chinese, or whatever, that their government is going to be on that. And that, that, that we're the United States of America, and the, the world's leading military power, and that we're certainly defending our borders and protecting our airspace. And I think people would be shocked if they knew that not only was this happening on a regular basis, but that we were doing virtually nothing about it. And so that's part of the message that, that we're trying to get out via the, the program on the History Channel, as well as op-eds and uh, and other communications well i'm definitely going to keep an eye out for that when it <clears throat> excuse me when it does come out um but unfortunately we're just about out of time um but i love to wrap up these um, episodes just by asking first um just generally what are your hopes for the future and also i'm going to slip this in because i feel like you're very qualified to have an opinion on this um do you believe there's life outside of earth um I am absolutely convinced that there is life beyond Earth 
and the Copernican revolution, I think we're near, we're approaching the point soon where the trend that he started, the recognition that we're not, the universe doesn't revolve around us, that we're not the central focal point of it, and we're not uh, special um, or unique, uh, we're, that's culminating, and, and it will, in our, our lifetime, in your lifetime, that will become an acknowledged fact. Um, in terms of hopes for the future, my, my hope in, is that we can um, fix and rectify some structural um, problems that, that have arisen in mismatches between our form of government and the challenges we face as a species and as a nation. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today and sharing your experiences and your thoughts. Um, that's just about it. But yeah, it was lovely talking to you and thank you for coming. Well, listen, thank you. And what I, what I will say is that one of the, I take great comfort from the fact that to the degree I'm optimistic about the futures because I know that there are a lot of good people like yourself who are going to be entering the workforce and helping to, uh, to fix and rectify these problems. Oh, thank you. Um, well, that was another episode of Take This Job and Love It with Christopher Mellon. Thank you again. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs>